Are we allergic to the modern world? And what can be done about that if so? That's the short and sweet, not so sweet actually, of what we're about to discuss. Dr. Teresa McPhail has written Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. Teresa is a medical anthropologist and an associate professor of science and technology studies at the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. Hello, Teresa. Hello, nice to meet you. And you. There's been a global rise in allergies over the last 200 years. We know this. Yes, absolutely. Over the last 200 years, we've seen a rise across the board in everything from respiratory allergies, skin allergies, to food allergies. Our very old immune systems can't keep up with modern lifestyles and diets, leading to increases in all manner of chronic health problems like allergies and obesity. With only vague knowledge of this subject, as with my knowledge, I think we single out obesity, for example, and we wonder how that can come under the aegis of modernity. Because of availability of food, temptation, just to concentrate on that at the start, what, what's your opinion? Well, you do see uh, some of this in relationship to allergies, especially food allergies. But as we're learning more about the gut microbiome, we're learning about how it interacts with our immune cells and, in fact, trains our immune cells very early on in our development prior to age two or three. And so if we're eating different foods, um, different quantities and different types, then we're changing our gut microbiomes, which is having this knock-on effect on our immune systems that I think we couldn't have predicted, but we're seeing the effects of. And so there's a real confusion about what is causing these. And then parents often find themselves caught up in this desire to pinpoint the exact reason. And often, in most cases, we can't tell anyone exactly why they've developed these allergies. Yeah, but we can tell that food allergies especially are on the rise, yes? Yes, we can. So there are a couple of sources of information. One is that we see more trips to the ER. So we see more children going into anaphylaxis as a result of eating a stray peanut or ingesting milk or whatever they're allergic to. And the other one um, is that the rate of EpiPen or adrenaline injectors, uh, the prescription rate has gone up. It's quadrupled in the last 20 years. So those are pretty good indications that what we're seeing isn't just a, a bump because we're better educated. That often happens. Um, the more people know about something, the more they realize it's a problem. But the ER visits and the EpiPen prescriptions signal that something bigger is happening across the board. And I'm going to get back to that and we'll try and unpack it a bit more. But uh, we've heard a lot about the hygiene hypothesis as well. And you write about this quite a bit. And I wonder if you you could tell us the state of play with opinion about the hygiene hypothesis and whether we're too clean. Right. So if your listeners aren't familiar with it, the hygiene hypothesis basically says that we are too hygienic and that our use of all of these cleaning products and, and we live in really clean homes now, that our immune systems don't get 
early training on the right types of bacteria. And so you have a tendency and they don't get sick as often. So, you know, um, one of the findings that led to the hygiene hypothesis was that an epidemiologist noticed that uh, children who had lots of older siblings seemed to be protected from a greater portion of developing allergies. So they seemed to be better off. And so he thought, well, what what do older siblings give to younger siblings? And the answer is a lot of bacteria and viruses. And so the theory was there's something happening about the absence of those viruses and bacteria and parasites that leads to the development of these allergies. Now we know that that's not necessarily true. Um, it's kind of been disproven as the smoking gun. It's definitely playing a role in relationship to our microbiomes, but it's not the only thing. And the reason we know that is that if that were the case, you would expect that in rural areas, places where, you know, you're interacting more with quote unquote dirty or, or environments filled with more bacteria that you would see a lower rate of allergies. If you do tests for predisposition or sensitivities for allergies, they're just like us. So obviously that can't be the answer if that's the case. The book is allergic. Our irritated bodies in a changing world and Dr. Theresa McPhail is with us. There are so many aspects, whether it's processed food, chemicals or microplastics now in our bloodstreams. uh, The fact is that it does seem to be down to the modern world. But that's the only world we have, you know, unless we're Amish or living in the Amazon somewhere. That's the problem, isn't it? Yes, that's the whole problem. It's like, I often use the metaphor, it's like our immune systems are using Windows 97 as an operating system in a 2024 world. And so it's trying to do Zoom calls and it's trying to download videos and listen to music on software that just, it simply wasn't built to cope with everything. So around 200 years ago, we had so many changes. We started moving from agrarian areas into urban areas, which meant more people. We started the Industrial Revolution, which changed air quality. So you had a lot more air pollution at the same time that we started cleaning up things. So we started sanitizing, you know, we started having sewer systems and cleaner water. So what experts really think happened is we don't have some of the bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites that our immune systems grew up with. So our immune systems, some of the components of our immune systems are 250, 500 million years old. And what we've done is we've subtracted some of the things we evolved with and we've added things that our bodies have never seen, like you were talking about, the microplastics, the air pollution, um, different types of food. And so they're really getting less of what they were used to and, and much more of what they weren't used to. And so they're a bit confused and irritated. On the other hand, we aren't dying from cholera and typhoid and dysentery right. in, in huge numbers. <laughs> so it is always a tra- yes. it is always a trade off. You think that good bacteria are these good bacteria that would improve our health are fighting a war against our diets as well, don't you? And losing that war. Yes, absolutely. So. When we changed our diets and also the introduction of antibiotics, 
They've found that if you give young children antibiotics before the age of two, repeated doses, their risk of developing asthma, eczema, or food allergy goes up significantly. So basically what those two things do, antibiotics kill off everything, good and bad bacteria. They, they don't differentiate. Um, and then the changing diet, so less fiber, more sugar and fat, those two things combined have really changed our gut microbiome. So what researchers at the University of Chicago and they have a, um, a sister university in Italy, they did this study together and found that if you looked at children that had a milk allergy versus children that didn't have a milk allergy were normal, um, their gut microbiome had completely different makeups. So we really do think that the gut microbiome has quite a bit to do with whether or not uh, someone is more at risk for developing allergy as they grow. Unfortunately, we had the exact wrong advice for a long time. Uh, the reigning advice was avoid all allergenic foods until the child was three. And it turns out that's the exact wrong thing to do because it's possible that the uh, infant could already have a sensitivity, but early exposure, so exposing them to allergenic foods early on actually can be protective. So a study done in Australia kind of proved this effect once the recommendation shifted the rate of peanut allergy actually dropped significantly as a result of this early introduction, not to zero. It's not going to work for everyone, but early introduction of foods to, to basically get your immune system used to it does tend to tamp down on that rate a little bit. Staying with prevention for a moment, Teresa, what role does a lack of breastfeeding play? Is the science settled on this? There's some indication that so part of the issue about the early training of the immune system, which is really crucial in the infancy, is that we're into our immune systems are built in. So we have innate immune systems as well as adaptive immune systems. The parts overlap, but the innate is exactly what it sounds like. You're born with it. It's ready to go. It's online and it gets trained throughout your childhood. And the way it's trained is it gets introduced to very specific types of bacteria in a specific sequence. So a vaginal birth will actually introduce the child to the first set of bacteria. And then the breast milk will introduce more and components that feed the right types, the quote unquote good bacteria that we need to digest food. So if that order is messed up, so if you get a C-section, and this is not to say that you shouldn't get a C-section, there are valid medical reasons for doing so. But what we found is that accidentally, that can kind of confuse this immune system. And then if you don't breastfeed, uh, and for some reason, if you do both, so if you do formula and breast milk, it's not as protective as just doing breast milk. But again, not to shame mothers out there who there are valid reasons for doing both of those things. And so there's, uh, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place because it is protective, but at the same time, it's not going to be appropriate for all families. But those women um, have babies with C-sections that can also be exposed to potentially harmful hospital bacteria too, can't they? Correct. And that's part of the issue. So they're not getting 
the quote-unquote normal healthy vaginal bacteria. Instead, they're getting exposure to the bacteria in the hospital setting. So that could also be part of this story. Higher levels of cheese in our diet. Gee, I raise my eyebrows at this. May accidentally worsen allergy symptoms because bacteria in some cheeses produce histamine. That's correct. uh, I mean, can you explain this? I mean, it's obviously most of us know when we're eating cheese, we're eating bacteria. If you don't know that, I'm sorry to be the first person to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) That's how we make cheese. And so some of the strains, so it depends on the cheese, the type of cheese. So some of the strains produce more histamine than others. And so if you're eating some of the ones that have a higher histamine count, you can actually... um, produce some symptoms that you're not going to like when you eat it. That's not to say, again, don't stop eating cheese because of this. Given that it's a tall order now, Teresa, avoiding all processed food in life, what do we do? It's just making sure you're doing what the dietitians and nutritionists are already telling you to do. So more fruit and more vegetables is always a good thing because they have fiber. So opting in for whole wheat uh, bread instead of white bread. So doing these basic little shifts can go a long way. Even something as simple as leaving the skin on your baked potato goes a long way to helping your gut microbiome. I like to tell people to start thinking of themselves as a colony, not as an individual. Ah. And so when you're doing something, when you're eating, you have to think, I'm not just feeding myself, I'm feeding them. What do they want? I contain multitudes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely, we do. We eat meat from animals that have been given low-dose antibiotics to make them fat. Farmers in New Zealand at least don't do that, you'll be pleased to know. But I'm sure antibiotics can creep in in lots of contexts if they're allowed to. How big a part is that playing, not just with uh, infants, but the rest of us? I think probably quite a large part. We don't really, again, we don't have the single, here's the one thing that caused all of this. But historically speaking, we we started with hay fever. So hay fever is the the first thing that we noticed back in 1819. As we go along, the real explosion that we've seen over the last 70 years really tracks to post-World War II. So you see globally when a country modernizes, it gets the same series of events. So first you see an explosion in respiratory allergies and asthma. So the United States went through that in the 1950s through the 1970s. Then it levels off and you see a rise in eczema and food allergies in later subsequent decades. So you'll see in the 90s, late 80s and 90s, you see this explosion of food allergies. But that first explosion, so everything's linked. It's all the same mechanism. It's just expressing itself in different parts of your body. But the thing that links everything together is we introduced antibiotics after World War II. So they become readily available in the late 1940s. And so there is a compelling correlation there that I think 
is is very much at the forefront of a lot of experts' minds thinking about the relationship between the various microbiomes. Because of course we have microbiomes in our our nasal tract and on our skin as well, and and all of them are affected by antibiotic usage. Yeah, indeed. Dr. Teresa McPhail is with us. She's written an allergic. Our irritated bodies in a changing world. So altered gut microbiota can have a direct effect on allergy. We can accept that. So we eat fermented foods and yogurt, some of us anyway. How much efficacy do you think they have in restoring balance down there? There's still a lot of research ongoing, but I can tell you that I've I've had conversations with gut surgeons and experts in that field that think it has quite a lot of promise for for dealing not just with allergies, but with a whole host of gastrointestinal issues. So, but within reason, I mean, I al- always like to caution people not to jump into fermented foods, because if you have any immunodeficiencies, that can go wrong quickly. And also to make sure you know where you're getting your fermented foods from. So, you know, this is one instance where you do kind of want a corporation to be producing your kombucha. It's much safer than your neighbor's kombucha. Yeah, that's something to think about. So baby steps as well. Uh, and you can do your own tests on your own body. That's the thing. You can introduce, like peanuts, you can introduce it in small amounts and see. Right. Right. And that's what they actually recommend, especially with fermented foods, because it's a delicate balance and you don't want to overwhelm it. So if you do anyone who has drank too much kombucha or done too much kimchi and aren't used to that daily ingestion, you get a lot of gassiness, you get a lot of upset stomach because it is changing the dynamic of your stomach. And so you want to kind of gradually introduce it. Have you changed your diet now as a result of your own research? I absolutely have. I was not, I am embarrassed to say how little I ever ordered a salad. (laughs) (laughs) But I was not a huge fan of vegetables, but I have made a concerted effort. So I try to have a salad a day. I have introduced fermented foods. So I will, um, I drink kefir, which is basically fermented. It's like yogurt, but a little bit stronger than yogurt. So I I try to, like I said, I try to think of myself as a colony. So when I sit down to eat, I think, okay, I need to feed me, but I also need to feed the trillions of bacteria living in me. So what do I want and what do they want? And I compromise. It's not that I stopped eating cake. I just eat less cake and more salad. Do you think the McPhail colony has benefited? Can you feel the difference? I can, actually. So when I started researching this book, it was selfish because I had been diagnosed with allergies myself, and I was getting sick a lot, um, primarily because if you're coping, if your immune system is busy coping with allergies, you're more likely to have issues with respiratory viruses and that kind of thing, just simply because they're, your immune system's kind of overwhelmed. Yeah. And I really don't get sick that much anymore. Without getting too technical... When you suggest that allergic disease is a barrier problem, not an immune system problem, what do you mean? Can you explain? 
Yes. Yeah, so our bodies are interacting with the world at these points. So if you think of the barriers as anything coming into contact with the outside world, so it's your skin, it's your respiratory tract, it's your intestinal tract. And the skin and, and your nasal passages and your gut, they have a layer of epithelial cells like protecting you. So there's a barrier there. And that's the site of a lot of immune interaction. So there's a lot of mast cells, which are white blood cells uh, along all of those pathways that things come into contact with you. And that's what's responsible for the allergic reaction. So mast cells emit histamine and cause a lot of your symptoms like itch and redness of the eyes and increased mucus production. They're what ultimately, in worst case scenarios, trigger the anaphylactic response. And so really, if you keep your barriers healthy and happy and in good balance, you tend to see less infection and less allergic response. So without being alarmist, uh, we should try and avoid giving antibiotics to children early in life. But um, I'm, I suppose I'm stating the obvious, but that can't all be altogether avoided. Right, exactly. I mean, I think it's we're starting to do this work already because we we also have problems with multi-drug resistant bacteria. So we're already thinking about the overuse of antibiotics, which is good for allergies as well. So the Mayo Clinic, for example, found that children under age two given antibiotics at greater risk for asthma, as you say, respiratory allergies, eczema. You mentioned that celiac disease, obesity and ADHD. That is correct. Quite a list. So something I meant to mention before, supplementing breast milk with formula, which must be reasonably common, not good. Are we sure? It seems to have no protective effect to mix. It seems to be that you have to really stick with breastfeeding alone for a certain amount of time. It doesn't have to extend you know, into a child's toddler years, but it does seem to be protective in those early phases. And they're not quite, they're not really sure why that would be since you're still getting some of the breast milk. So there's some confusion about why the introduction of the formula would have any effect. And at this point, we really don't know, except that we've seen that it kind of loses the protective effect if you do both. Yeah, that is so interesting. And as you say, puzzling. 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 Even just changing the sheets on our beds, we never think of this, can change our microbiomes in a good, uh, speaking of barriers, in a good way or a bad way. Well, if you do it too frequently, um, what is happening is your your skin has bacteria on it. Again, good bacteria and fungi and all of those good parts of you. And they get on your sheets and they kind of procreate. You know, you're, you're living in a bed of bacteria, but it's not necessarily bad because if you're taking a shower before you go to bed, it's your bacteria. You're not normally tracking in outside bacteria into your bed. And so just changing the sheets less frequently, it's almost like coating chicken before you fry it. <laughs> yeah, but it's a good coating. Like you don't really want to disrupt your skin microbiome much either because you can get a lot of skin irritation. And if you're prone to eczema, 
um, folks with eczema really need to be thinking about their skin barrier and its relationship to the microbiome. So it's, again, really just thinking not just about you, but about the things that live alongside you. And so changing your sheets every other week instead of every week um, doesn't do any harm. So it doesn't let things get out of control but it allows your natural bacteria to kind of do its thing. And so it's always trying to keep a balance because as you said, nobody wants to go back to the days where we're all dealing with um, TB or E. coli or cholera, but just thinking about not all bacteria are built the same and some of them are good to us. There are commensal bacteria and we need them. A lot of your book is sobering reading. But that was very welcome news. Change your sheets less often. <laughs> I, f- <laughs> I found it so. The, the book is Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. And Dr. Teresa McPhail is with us. One scientist tells you he wishes we could change lifestyles and diets in a population and see what happened. Uh, but proof may lie in the fact that our pets are also developing more a- allergies, whereas their equivalents in the wild don't seem to be. Correct. So I went to speak to um, people at the top, one of the top veterinary schools here in the U.S., Cornell University, and they told me that our companion animals, so our dogs, our cats, our birds, horses, um, they're all developing the same types of allergies that we have. So cats will get asthma and itch and dogs will get itch food allergies usually is the culprit there Um, horses will get itch as well and wheezing birds will get wheezings and they're the only species that are showing signs of allergies so if you go out into the wild you're not going to see deers sneezing (laughs) (laughs) or itching from allergy so that's one of the warning signs that it's something about our lifestyle and our home environments or the human environment specifically that's causing this. The veterinarians were very interested in um, food processing because one of the things is is that our companion animals eat what we eat. So they are eating processed food. So they're doing some research to see if the gut microbiomes of these various species also are implicated in their development of allergies. So that research is ongoing. I haven't seen any new updates about it, but it's really interesting. And to me, it's really compelling that we are causing this in some way. Yes, uh, cats and dogs, in a way, are allergic to us. Yes, and if you do see any symptoms in them, it is probably their food. So in a great majority of cases, it's swapping out their food for a different type of food. If children brought up on a farm, you said being rural wasn't uh, salvation. If children brought up on a farm have fewer allergies, though, uh, there may be something in farm dust. Uh, what, What is stable dust? Well, it's a mixture of things, right? So you have the vegetation. So you have like pollen spores in there. You have mold in there. Usually you have obviously dirt and um, you have dander from the animals because that's the key component. It's not just barn dust. It's barns with animals. So if you have livestock, that seems to help. 
So researchers aren't really sure what the protective effect is. It could be the mixture of those things interacting with our immune cells. It could be one of those things is helping us. Um, it turns out that if you have a dog in your house, you also have a protective effect. So dogs bring in bacteria, but they also have dander on them as well. And so that's maybe mimicking. It's like having a mini barn in your house, I guess. <laughs> so there's something about that that does seem protective. And the way they know that is they actually did research in Germany and Switzerland on children that are raised and they're being carried in and out of livestock barns throughout their formative years. So from age zero to age three. And their rates of um, allergies, allergic disease are almost non-existent compared to their peers. Not all farm exposures, as you point out, are beneficial to health. But regarding the children and adults who live with dogs, uh, they have lower rates of asthma and obesity, don't they? Yes, they do. And again, we're not sure why, but we do think it has something to do with them and, and their habits and what they're bringing into us. And then when we interact with them, we're obviously getting these micro exposures that might actually be beneficial for us. Sadly, cat lovers, it goes in the opposite direction for cats. And so if you happen to have an infant that has a skin barrier defect that's genetic, um, you can actually uh, increase their risk of developing asthma if you have a cat. But right now, there's no genetic test for that particular defect. So it's kind of a, a roll of the dice. But so far as we know, cats don't seem to be protective in the way that dogs are. Gee, this is interesting information. Outdoor play and recreation are likely to be more protective against allergies than spending hours playing Minecraft or Fortnite or Call of Duty. And I, I don't think you'll get much disagreement about that except from the players. But we associate <laughs> that with poor mental health outcomes. And in fact, physically, uh, we may be putting children at risk if we don't clamp down on late night you know, game playing sessions. Right. Well, there's a link between allergy and vitamin D. It's being studied. It's again, it's not going to be the smoking gun, but you do see that a lot of us have vitamin D deficiencies because we're not out in the sun and, and your skin in the sun produces vitamin D. And if you're not getting it from another source, then you're likely to be deficient. So that's one angle. But then the other angle is there's been a rise in the things indoors that um, children are exposed to. So if you're sitting on a couch, there are tons and tons and tons of dust mites on that couch. And so, and dust mites love warm, moist environments. And so you're getting more exposure to dust mites and other dust. So house dust, which is a mixture of dead skin cells and, and things in the environment. And so you're getting more of that. And so that, that switchover seems to lead to problems as well. So during the COVID pandemic, interestingly enough, we saw fewer cases of asthma showing up in the ERs because of the face masks outside. So if you were allergic to pollen or outdoor materials, you were actually doing better. But if you were in allergic to dust mites or mold or something that is indoors, there was no decrease in your troubles. And so there, again, it's just 
it, all of the advice is relative to what you're dealing with as an individual. Oh, God, I'm going to have to stand up and wear a mask and not sit down when watching <laughs> television. That's the problem. Look, <laughs> It's everything in moderation. I mean, I... I, I hate to be, I, I feel like this could go either way. You could either become paranoid by everything invisible that you can't see, or you can just understand that your body's always in a constant conversation, invisible conversation with these things, and just try to vary your routine and vary what you eat and try to keep those things in mind as much as possible without going overboard, and I think you'll be okay. Reading what you write, it occurred to me that maybe we should, in theory, be on a farm for a couple of hours a week, not all the time. Children should play in the dirt and try and eat a snail shell maybe once a month, not all the time, if you know what I mean. There's, there seems to be no ideal rural or natural world solution, speaking of moderation. Yes, that's that's right. Experts are predicting that right now it's around 30% of the entire global population has some form of allergy. That's going to go up to 40 to 50% by 2050. And so this is really a global problem. It's a community problem more than it is an individual problem because there's not much any of us can do about our air quality or uh, microplastics in our water or our food. Um, or what trees are being planted in our neighborhoods, there, or climate change for that matter, which is changing things a lot for respiratory allergy sufferers. Um, but we can work as a community to kind of try to think about all of this and see what we can do on that scale. If household cleaning products have been implicated in the development of wheezing and asthma in small children. That was a Canadian university study which you mentioned. Isn't there something we can do about how we clean our houses? Yeah, just again, you're going to be happy with this advice. Don't go too hard on the cleaning. Um, Use just soap and water. We don't really need all of these harsh detergents that we're using to kill all the microbes. Again, we want to kill the salmonella coming off of the chicken in our kitchens but beyond that that those things can be taken care of with less harsh detergents and so thinking about what you're using around the house aerosol sprays are a bad idea simply because they disperse the contents into the air and so what we found is children tend to breathe uh, more frequently and so young children are inhaling at a greater rate And so if you're using a spray aerosol, if you're spraying Lysol, that's not a great idea around a six-month-old baby. And, of course, we shan't be ditching in a hurry all the makeup, the lipstick, the eyeliner, the mascara, the shampoos, the whole cosmetic catastrophe. Do we know, do we absolutely know, Teresa, that these chemicals, again, always said to be at safe levels, are particular culprits? Well, it's impossible. Poor... Poor eczema sufferers, if if you know anyone with eczema, it's one of the worst allergies you can have because it's it's never quite clear. It's almost impossible to figure out your trigger. So you really don't know what your skin is coming into contact with that it is being irritated by. So it's hard to say. Um, a lot of the things we put on us impact that skin barrier. And so there are things that help and there are things that hurt. One of the worst things you can do is try to strip your skin 
So if you're scrub, scrub, scrubbing away at your skin with a harsh uh, detergent, uh, that's probably not a great idea. Um, so using milder things, whenever possible, using fragrance-free things because our skin tends to not like fragrance very much. So the components that we use to create fragrances, our skin doesn't, our skin cells don't particularly like them that much. And so those are often an irritant. So it's basically a fool's errand to try to figure out what specific components of a lot of this are causing the problem. I think the larger problem is if you're slathering on 17 creams a day, that's a lot of conversations, extra conversations that your immune cells have to have throughout the day. And so just trying to keep it simple, I think, is better for all of us, again, our, our skin cells and the microbial cells that live on our skin. Uprisings in the colony occur. Yes, that's right. You want to tamp down. You want to keep uh, everyone happy. <laughs> uh, Teresa McPhail's current book, which we, we've been talking about, is Allergic, uh, Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. I understand your next book is about what happens to our bodies and minds as we age why do you say that acceptance of aging and death is the key to aging well? Well, there's a lot of research that um, anti-aging leads us into ageism. So an ageism has a negative effect on our actual physical health. So if we have negative attitudes about ourselves as we age, which many of us do because we've internalized the ageism that we see around us, then that can have actual physical ill benefits. So they've found that there's differences in um, heart disease rates and dementia rates just based on how people felt about their aging because aging, we can't stop it um, completely. We can slow it down perhaps, but only about 30% of, uh, 30 to 40% of aging is behavioral. The rest is genetic and environmental. So I think putting a lot of focus on us doing all the right things is accidentally leading to people feeling guilty and as though they didn't do enough if they eventually need to have a hip replacement. And that's not true at all. You, you could be a marathon runner, and if your genes are stacked against you, if, you're, if your environment, if you're breathing in a lot of air pollution, you're going to have some physical problems as you age unrelated to your own um, activities. So I'm just going to try to explore that in the book rather than just give people these platitudes about, oh, you need to be exercising this amount and you'll be fine. Well... Maybe not, but um, let's let's all get more comfortable with this so that we don't have anti-aging be the only way to approach aging. Anti-aging obsession. It is such an, yes. an interesting topic. And if ageism is worse, and of course we're surrounded by pictures of the young and the beautiful, I wonder if the disappearance of heaven as a destination in the minds of many people once we depart this realm has changed us actually quite profoundly in ways we haven't got to grips with yet. Nobody talks about death. Well, I know, don't know. That's if they, right. Yeah. I don't know how and often they used to. There's some really interesting research that's ongoing that's showing that people who live in more religious communities, so here in the United States, that's the South, the Bible Belt, 
they actually have different outcomes with aging. Some of the best agers are nuns and monks. And partly it is exactly what you're saying. They have a better attitude because they fully believe that they're going to something better. And so they don't really try to stop aging. They accept that they're aging. And in fact, they age better because of that. So nuns have incredibly low rates of dementia compared to their peers outside of the convents. And so there's definitely something to that. Interesting. Well, that'll be a good book to read when it comes out as well. We look forward to that. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your current one. And very good of you to give us so much time talking about it. Oh, happy to do it. I can talk about allergies all day, unfortunately.